Hi, my name is Hans Klevers, a scientist from the Netherlands. Uh, I give a total of three talks. In the first talk, I have described how Nick Barker discovered gut stem cells in my lab uh, using the LJ5 marker that he found, and then how Toshi Sato developed uh, this technology into ways of growing stem cells, originally from the gut, but then also from other organs, into mini-organs, or as we call them, Organoids. Now, on this slide here, you see a list of, uh, of tissues that we and other labs have since been able to culture. Um, I should stress that this particular technology always starts from adult tissue, and we don't need stem cells. We can take a small biopsy, a tiny bit of tissue, put it in a growth factor cocktail that always resembles the cocktail that Toshi Sato originally uh, developed, but that has to be modified for every tissue. Um, when, this, when you start a culture, what you'll see is that the epithelial cells are very happy. They immediately close up. They form an epithelial closed structure, a cyst or a mini-gut or a mini-liver, and then starts growing. Every other cell in that culture will disappear, will die and will disappear. And if you want to study, for instance, immune cells or um, microbes in the connection with these organoids, you can add them later on, but they will not expand with these organoids. Another essential thing I should say is you can clone them, so you can actually grow them. Uh, they, will, um, they will always have all the characteristics of the tissue that you find interesting, but you can CRISPR modify them, take a single cell that you like, and grow it up again in an organoid. So they really like cell lines in that sense, and almost all technologies that have been developed around cell lines can be applied for, for, uh, for, for organoids. Originally, we developed them in mouse, but as soon as it works in mice, with some modifications, often the addition of one or two more growth factors, this could be translated into organoid culture growing human organoids. Now, you see the list here. They're all epithelial, and I'd like to give you a few illustrating examples. This is the liver. We now believe that the liver doesn't have professional stem cells. It has two ways of repairing itself. Normally, a liver is not very proliferative at all. But when um, a surgeon has to remove half the liver, for instance, because of metastasis, the remainder of the liver that is essentially healthy can grow back in a matter of weeks. A massive expansion, probably the most dramatic uh, evidence of stem cell activity in the human body. This is not done by professional stem cells. This is done by the parasites, the large 40 micrometer cells that are the chemical factories of our body. In the top, you see here uh, sorted hepatocytes. These cells are very important in drug development. Toxicology is, uh, is, is a key target of toxins, are the hepatocytes. Hepatocytes are also the, the cells that modify drugs and, and, and break them down. So far, it has been impossible to culture human hepatocytes long-term. You can buy them from donor livers. You can grow them. The moment you put them in culture, they will actually decline. And after six or seven days, they're no longer useful for, for anything. And as you can see here, in our first attempts, we failed to grow hepatocytes, as expected. This has always been impossible. But Mary Hoog, who did this in the lab, um, currently leads her own lab in, in Dresden, in Germany, she managed to grow the other cells, and these are the cholangiocytes. This is the other, the second liver cell type. Cholangiocytes built the bile ducts. Again, these are fully differentiated cells. Um, and they were suspected to be the source of what's called oval cells. And oval cells appear in livers when a liver is in chronic problems, alcohol 
or viruses where every liver cell is sick. Uh, then the uh, cholangiocytes come to the rescue. They de-differentiate. They become small. They proliferate. Uh, so they become stem cell-like. And uh, once they manage to repair the liver, they go back to become uh, cholangiocytes, so build bile ducts, or become the hepatocytes, the chemical factories of the, uh, of the liver. And these actually are champions of organ building. Almost every single cholangiocyte, so a fully differentiated cell, that we put in this, in, in this culture medium in a matter of two or three days will de-differentiate and will grow into a cell that can create uh, liver organoids. And this is images of what these cholangiocyte liver organoids look like. So they're hollow spheres. They're lined by heavily uh, polarized cells, as I'll show you a little bit later. They're beautiful. Uh, they make some early markers of cholangiocytes. They also have some early markers of the other cell type, the hepatocytes. And we can actually expand them and then drive them to back into the cholangiocyte lineage where they come from or into the hepatocyte lineage, which is really the most important cell of the liver but they never become complete hepatocytes. We have to transplant to basically let them finish that uh, trajectory. So Hui Li, uh, about uh, two years ago, entered my lab and asked uh, if, if, if it would be possible to actually also get this step going. So sort these fully mature, very large hepatocytes, put them in a mix of growth factors, and, and then and get them to, to, to divide while maintaining their hepatocyte phenotype. Many other people in the lab had actually declined the project. They thought it will never work. Uh, she actually managed to uh, put a cocktail together, about 10 different compounds. It was very hard work. But you can see here a mouse hepatocyte. We always start with mouse tissues. In this cocktail, we'll start proliferating, as you can see here, and make these very unusually shaped organoids that we had never seen. There's not really a lumen inside. There are multiple small lumina, as I'll show you a little bit. And they will grow for months. Uh, the younger the donor of the cells is, the longer they will grow. Unlike gut, that we can grow forever, or many other organoids, there seems to be a limit to uh, how, many, how, how long we can grow them. And some of the youngest liver donors, also in men, as I show you here, that we've been able to, able to grow for more than a year, and they, they grow with probably uh, a speed of, of threefold, fourfold amplification every week. Here you see one of those human organoids. There's essentially a cell division here. Uh, you see large nuclei positive for the nuclear marker HNF4-alpha that specifies hepatocytes. And here we stain for a, an abundant protein product, alpha-1 antitrypsin. And you can see how much of this protein is being made. You could also have stained for albumin, um, which they abundantly make, or the cytochromes, the enzymes that, that essentially turn the uh, hepatocytes into chemical factories. They really, by all means, look like the real thing. When we started looking in 3D, and this is done by Andrios lab in, uh, in Utrecht in the Netherlands, we started seeing very surprising things. Not only do they create many, many hepatocytes, you can see the very large cells, but on the blow up here, you might appreciate that there's much more structure. So here would be a single large hepatocyte with its large nucleus. But we started seeing these canals, these channels. This is a staining for a bile transporter, MRP2. And MRP2 essentially um, is the transporter that allows hepatocytes to secrete bile acids into canaliculi. Canaliculi are, are formed by the apical domains of hepatocytes. They merge together and they build a, a, a canal that actually feeds into, in a real liver, into the real bile ducts that are flanked by the other cell type. Now, what we think we're seeing here is a bile canaliculus 
that you can see here, the more nice Latin name for this structure, starting inside the uh, hepatocyte, running between hepatocytes into a central space. This is where the bile duct should have been. Uh, in this particular type of organism, we don't have them because we didn't culture the other cell type. And we're now, at the moment, as we speak, we're trying to merge the two organoids and see if, indeed, they would connect up here, produce nice bile ducts, and transport the bile further out of this uh, organ. So I show this because I think it shows the, uh, demonstrates the remarkable self-organizing capabilities of stem cells. We do very little. We just add growth factors, and these cells know exactly how to build very complicated structures. Now, this is some uh, biochemistry and some molecular biology to demonstrate that they really are hepatocytes. Here you see, for instance, a number of the, uh, the hepatocyte markers that uh, people in this field always worry about. Albumin should be there at high levels. There's many other proteins. These are two liver samples. Right next to this are a number of these hepatocyte markers from adult donors, from pediatric donors, but also from fetal donors. They all produce patterns of gene expression that are very similar to the real thing, to hepatocytes. The difference is hepatocytes would die in a few days. These will live for, and expand for many months. And here are the other um, organoids that are made from the cholangiocytes. You see they're very good at expressing uh, cholangiocyte markers, but they're not very good in expressing the hepatocyte markers, as we would have expected. And that's also illustrated by these uh, graphs higher up. Are they the real thing? Uh, Ipe de Jong in uh, New York helped us with transplantation. So we grew up from, from a very small number of hepatocytes. We grew up organoids, hepatocyte organoids, and this is now human liver organoids. And they were transplanted into mice that are deficient in the in FAH enzyme. This means that if you keep them on a special diet, these mice are fine. But the moment you put them on normal food, they will start accumulating toxins in hepatocytes, and they will slowly lose their, their liver cells. Um, so, so if you put them on normal, talk, uh, on normal food, but at the same time you give them human hepatocytes, these human hepatocytes will actually rescue the mice. They will build islets of, of normal tissue. And that's exactly what our cells can do. What you see here in red is human albumin. So this is really just a large island where seeded by just a few organoid cells that have expanded over a few months. Uh, and here you see another island. So th these cells are really capable in vivo of establishing themselves as, as functional cells and to, uh, to create functional tissue. And if you follow the, the serum albumin, but the human albumin in, the, in these mice, and this, is, this is a critical experiment. Um, Again, we were here. This is where we, uh, we got our reviews back. We had three months to do additional experiments. You can see that here. We, so we terminated uh, the experiment 90 days after it was started. Um, and then we realized that the mice were actually just building up to make very large amounts of albumin. This would be uh, one milligram, sort of close to one milligram per ml. This is the, uh, you're getting, I guess mice will have 30, 40 milligrams, but this is far higher than you would ever get from, from IPS cells and gets close to what you would get from so they really look like the real thing. Lung organoids, um, they can actually be grown from lavages. You don't have to get biopsies or surgical material. You can just uh, get some fluid out of the lung or out the nasal cavity. What you see here in green are cilia. So this would be one cell here that is ciliated. And as you probably realize, cilia are very important to move a mucus layer out of the, the deeper areas of the lung to your oral cavity, after which you get rid of the mucus. This is a, an important uh, cleaning mechanism for the airways. Uh, so it looks like they have ciliated cells. In between, we see the, the mucus-producing cells, basal cells, et cetera, et cetera. And when we starting um, 
so I started looking at these movies uh, of lung organoids. We saw movement for the first time. We never see this in other organoids. And on a blow-up, you might appreciate that there is a, a layer of ciliated cells that connects up. You can see that here. And produce waves of movement. And this results in, in a spinning around of the mucus that you see here, uh, which probably represents the normal flow of mucus out of the depth of your lungs to the, to the oral cavity. This is our version of uh, lung organoids. There are many other labs that have produced different versions, so um, uh, they're very com comparable, although the growth conditions are sometimes different. Uh, for us, we know we can grow them for one, two years, and we can start them from, uh, from very small bits of, of mucus or, or brush from the, from the nasal cavity. And then uh, finally, um, this is a, a very recent study where we've left the, uh, the mammals, Jurek, uh, Jens, and Joop, named on this slide here, uh, decided to see if they could grow reptilian uh, organoids, uh, realizing that we're using mammalian growth factors, mouse or human, and also realizing that very little, if anything, is known about the, by the cell biology of, uh, of reptiles, particularly about stem cells, stem cell behavior. So they took, they took the gamble to see if they could work with this. Um, we got, uh, from a snake breeder in Holland, we got a few eggs that were close to hatching, of a snake called the Cape Coral snake. And that's realized when snakes get out of their eggs, they are complete. There's no mother taking care of them. They have to catch their own food. And so they have venom glands, they have fangs, they can eat, they can see. And so this, uh, this little snake that you see in the egg has venom glands. Uh, what I'll show you has actually worked for a series of venomous snakes. You see them, they're complicated names in this particular slide here. But I'll just show you the, uh, uh, the results we got with the Cape Coral snake. Uh, you see various images of organoids. Here we actually see a situation where they're proliferating. Again, they proliferate on the basic cocktail of growth factors that we had defined for the mouse gut. So reptilian venom glands use the very same growth factors as, as mouse gut. Um, we have to actually expand them in one situation, and then they don't make much venom. Then we differentiate them. Essentially, we take all of the growth stimuli out. We level set and settle down. And when we do so, we start seeing that the cells have large vacuoles. You can see that here with light and dark staining uh, substances. This is the luminal side of the organoid. This is the basal side. And you can see the venom that's secreted. This is all venom, this gray area, that's secreted by these secretory cells into the lumen of the... Uh, so how... How close is this now to real, uh, to real venom gland cells? Um, we do single cell sequencing is a, a new technology. There are other iBiology lectures on this subject. In essence, every dot here represents a cell for which we know for all genes what the expression levels is. Um, we've had problems with contaminations uh, in the lab, uh, well known. I know many people think they grow interesting cells, but they're HeLa cells. Uh, we have had this with, uh, with gut organoids, so we were a little bit worried that this was not snake that we're looking at. Uh, but, you know, we saw this and we realized that the, the, for, the form of this uh, plot is exactly what snakes should look like. Now, when we look at um, the gene expression profiles, these are differentiated organoids. These are organoids that are growing fast. And this is... Um, an early passage of the same fast-growing organoids. And this is the venom gland tissue. What you see here is a number of, of venomous of toxin genes. So the expression of these toxin genes is actually much higher in our cultured organoids than it was even in the original venom gland tissue. And this, the selection of toxins 
typically there are 10 to 20 different proteins, heavily modified proteins that are made in these venom glands that are the toxins. Uh, and we see the whole, the whole set of these proteins being produced. Of note, there's very little known about cell, are there different cell types making different toxins, are there stem cells, et cetera, et cetera. And this actually, this, this uh, system allows us to address this. Uh, a control here is, is liver. We can actually grow snake liver as well, as so we can do human liver and pancreas. And you can see that they produce all of the, the, the homologs of the liver genes and the pancreas genes, but they don't make the toxins as expected. So this looks as if we're really growing venom glands. When we look more carefully at, at TSNE plot, uh, again, every dot is a cell for which we know the exact gene expression profile. So they cluster together. They're very similar in gene expression. And what we notice there is proliferative cells, and we see various toxins produced in different clusters of cells. So there's a CRISP cluster. There's a CTL cluster, another toxin group. There is a... Uh, trifinger toxin group that sits here. So it really starts looking like a mammalian stem cell hierarchy where a single stem cell drives the development of different cell types that have different functions. And that, if you look more carefully, that turns out to be the case. We can actually find cells that have the markers of mammalian stem cells, like RNA43, but here you see, for instance, LDR5, ASCL2, another very good stem cell marker in the gut. Um, and from this, we can, we can design trajectories of how these stem cells make progenitor cells and how they then make the different, uh, the different toxins. So is this real toxin? Um, it is generally believed that if you express a toxin gene in a standard, like HEC293 cell, for instance, it produces the protein but doesn't have the modifications that turns into a toxin. These are particular sugars, uh, have heavily modified uh, disulfide bridges. Um, so we've asked first biochemically, but then also functionally, are these glands organoids, are they really making the thing? Are they really making the toxins that a snake would use? Uh, first approach would be to look at uh, molecular weights by mass spec, so they're extremely exact. This is what we get from venom from, uh, from a snake farm, where, where the snakes are, are milked. And if we look at the same peaks in our venom gland organoids from the same snake species, you can actually appreciate that the molecular weights are almost identical. So we believe that the modifications in culture are exactly the modifications that the snake puts on these proteins to make them, to make them into toxins. Uh, functionally, uh, what you see here is, is muscle cells, um, and you will see calcium wave, uh, wave propagation in these muscle cells right here. And I think if we now... Um, summarize this uh, by calculation, you can see that these actually, they, they move along the, uh, the muscle fibers. But if you expose these cultures to the toxins as produced by snakes, but also as produced by our venom gland organoids, this, this wave propagation is entirely halted. And this would be a prediction because there was one toxin there that was not very well characterized, but it was clearly was predicted to be uh, interfering with this particular process. So it looks like they, uh, they are the real thing. Now, why would we do this? Well, first of all, we think it's interesting to study how reptilians use stem cells and how they build stem cell hierarchies. But there are immediate applications you can think of. There's about two to 400 venomous snake species. Sharks kill about 
12 to 18 people a year around the world. They, they create a lot of attention, but little impact. Snakes kill up to 150 or 200,000 people a year, and another half million will lose limbs or will be blind because of snake attacks. Uh, for some snakes, there is uh, uh, an antidote, an antiserum. So if you're in time, you know what the snake actually was, what species you can give that antidote. For most snakes, um, that doesn't exist. So one thing one could do with this is actually build a library of all venomous snake species. I showed you we have already 10 or 12 in the lab and then use them as a continuous source of venom to create anti-venom, uh, anti-serum. Um, another application would be um, harvesting unique biologically active molecules from these toxins. Actually, there are several drugs, well-known drugs, that are originally derived from snake toxins. They will interfere with coagulation, for instance, or they will be neurotoxins that can be used in anesthesia, et cetera, et cetera. So we think if you would build a large library of snake venom gland organoids from different species, Every species probably producing up to 20 or 30 different toxins. This would be a fantastic resource for, uh, for drug development. And with that, I'd like to thank you very much for your attention.